Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by Raptor Aid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook. Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. On our first Facebook Live interview, we're joined by none other than Yolo Williams, presenter, broadcaster and all-round naturalist. Now, Yolo is probably best known for his work on the BBC's Spring Watch and Autumn Watch, but he's also been known to like a cake or two, and he's always got a fun story. So we hope you enjoy listening in. Okay, well, you can start off telling us about... Because you weren't all, you've not always been a BBC presenter, so there's probably some people who don't know about your background. So you better tell us a little bit about that first. Yeah, um, I, I never intended to work in telly at all, really. Um, my dream when I was a kid, from when I was a little lad, was always to work with wildlife. And um, I wasn't very good at school, didn't like school very much, so I skived school as often as I possibly could to go off fishing and bird nesting and all. Well, I'm only being honest, I might as well be honest, didn't I? To go off fishing and yeah. nesting and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I scraped uh, through two A levels just enough to get me to Polytechnic down in London. Um, yeah. and, and that was when I uh, fell back in love with education. The course was brilliant, it was a degree in ecology. And um, at the end of that, then I worked on a farm for a while, I worked in the forestry for a while, and I finally got a job in 85 working for the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, as a species officer. And that entailed uh, three main fields, really. One was monitoring birds, sort of getting out in the field to count birds, find out where they were, how many we had. Um, advisory work, giving advice to some of the big landowners, National Trust and Forestry Commission. And then investigations, investigating crimes against wild birds. And yeah. um, because of the nature of the work, of course, I had to deal with the media every now and again. And I was there for nearly 15 years, loved the job, absolutely loved the job. But it was a change in organisation, you know, um, things were sort of changing constantly there. So um, in the end, I was told I had to move up into middle management, which I didn't want to do. I just wanted to carry on doing the work I was doing. And I was given no option, really. So I handed in my notice and then... Um, Welsh Telly and uh, BBC Wales, they offered me work as a wildlife presenter. Yeah. Uh, I, I said no, I still didn't want to go into telly, had no desire to do that, but then found there was no other work around. So I then accepted the work. Uh, that was 22 years ago now. 22 years yeah, ago. Yeah. So that's how I got into telly, very much by accident. Oh, brilliant. What, what, what was your first thing on telly? What, what was it? Oh, oh, Can you even remember? Yeah, I can. I remember my first thing. It was on Welsh telly. It was about, I would say, probably around 1988, something like that, about 1988. Yeah. And at the time in the RSPB, we, we, we were using dummy eggs to put in red kite nests that where an, an internal alarm went off warning us when someone had picked up the egg. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. And I remember taking the egg into the studio with me live. And I was sweating so much. I was so nervous. 
and underneath the egg in the palm of my hand, I had a pool of sweat. So <laughs> it was, it was, I had a dry mouth and it was, oh, I was, it was dreadful. You know, I hated it. Absolutely hated it. But then when you, when you're going to do it all the time, uh, you just get used to it in the end. And, um, yeah. but, but that was the first one. That was the very first one. Oh, good man. Right. I've had a question from Mountain Escapes. I don't, can you see the questions on the side, y'all? No, can I you can't. All right, okay. Don't worry. Mountain Escapes are the people that are organising the Welsh Hen Harrier Day, by the way, oh. which you're supposed to be talking at. Well, yeah, all, being well, yeah. all, all being well that COVID-19 doesn't kibosh it. Yeah. Um, so he wants to know, with Hen Harrier numbers slowly on the rise here in God's country, what can be done to monitor, protect them during lockdown? Now, I've had this question quite a few times lately about people worrying about, as he puts it, the dark side will go on a killing spree. Um, so uh, what's he put? I got, uh, oh, yeah, so, yeah, it, apparently he got asked to leave a place because of lockdown by um, the gamekeeper. Um, but I suppose landowners are well within the rights to, if they want to. Um, so, yeah, I think he wants to know... Um, Basically, what, what do you feel can be done to help monitor and protect during this period? Yeah, it's a, it's a very, diff, it's a very very difficult one, isn't it? it? Because really, the work that's going on there, legal and illegally, um, it, is that essential work? I don't think it is. I've seen so many videos of, of moorland being burnt, especially north of England and Scotland now. That's, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm against it anyway, but that should be stopped now. That should be yeah. absolutely stopped. That is not essential work at all. Yeah. And it, they should be kept off the moor. Um, and that's the only way that you can guarantee that some of the birds, hen areas particularly, won't be touched. It, it'll it never happen, of course, because a lot of it goes on on these big estates behind closed doors. Um, so the next best thing, I think, is that um, certain field workers, whether they're voluntary or not, should be allowed access up onto these moors because you are self-isolating. You're not putting yourself or anyone else in any danger, but you could well be helping to um, uh, to apprehend people who are breaking the law. Well, you know, fun, fun, funny enough, you should say about I, I spoke to Tony Cross's brother today. I know, I know his brother quite well. And I said to him, what's, what's Tony up to at the moment with this situation? And he, and he said, well, I spoke to my brother. Um, those of you that don't know, Tony Cross is a fantastic ornithologist, field ornithologist, especially in Wales. For Many of you have seen him on Curlew Country, which is the recent thing he's been doing. But Tony said, well, I've been self-isolated for the last, last 30 years watching birds because no one else is around. Yeah, yeah. He's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he is right. And uh, just, to, just to correct some of the facts about hen harriers in Wales, too. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> excuse me, unfortunately, hen harriers are not on the increase in Wales and haven't been for best part of 10 years now. Um, when I worked for the RSPB, we had anything between about 25 and 30 pairs. Numbers then over, the, over 20 years nearly doubled, up to nearly 60 pairs. <laughs> And then since then, we're now back down to about 40 to 45 pairs. And yeah. um, the, the only reason for that is, is persecution. Some of that persecution is in Wales. We know there's at least one moorland up in northeast Wales where 
hen harriers so-called disappear. But we also know that uh, the, a lot of the Welsh birds will move away from Wales in the winter. Um, most of them move south and east to places like East Anglia, Kent Marshes, France, Spain, Portugal sometimes. But we know some yeah. move on to the moors of the north of England as well, where, you know, putting it bluntly and honestly, they haven't got a hope in hell. Yeah, yeah, it's dire, dire situation. Right, okay, let's move, let's move on to a bit more light-hearted. I've got Ian's just asked as well. Um, yes, I was supposed to be. He's asked about a presentation that got cancelled of mine. Ian, um, I don't know yet until until we know what how COVID nineteen and the lockdown is going to pan out. Um, I, I don't know when I'm going to be doing the Philippine Eagle presentation. But what I will do is, if I don't get a chance. To do it, I'll, I'll I'll put it on online. I'll do the presentation online, and then anyone bored enough to watch yeah. it can can um can, can watch it themselves. Uh, Mike Price, evening, good evening, good evening. Um, so what? Obviously, in terms for you, y'all, and, and work at the moment, it's it's like a lot of people. There's, I know I've got several friends in the the same industry as you, cameramen and the like, who've all been pulled home and, and they're sat twiddling the funds now. What did you have any, What did you have on the horizon or what, what was... Yeah, um, what's happened to me, and it'll happen to a lot of freelancers as well, is that at the moment, um, at least two months' work has gone. Um, mm. You know, we're all on lockdown, rightly so, I can't argue with that. Um, but the problem we've got is that... Under the current schemes, we're not being compensated in any way. Um, yeah. it, it's a weird thing. You know, the big companies have encouraged all of us, well, you must go self-employed. Uh, of course, if we weren't, then we'd be being kind of compensated. But, <laughs> you know, it is what it is. We'll have, to, um, we'll have to work something out sometime. But for the next two months, all talks, all tours have been cancelled. Um, we're talking to Springwatch at the moment and the, the BBC are very, very keen for Springwatch to go ahead. Um, it'll be yeah. very different if it does go ahead and we still don't know whether it will or not yet. It'll be very different. You're not going to have 120 people in one place, you know, so it's likely to be, if it does go ahead, Chris Packham in his back garden, Gillian in her back garden in Cornwall, me in my back garden or somewhere nearby here in Wales, and um, we'll have to get some films filmed beforehand if it's possible. As you know, it's constantly changing. We've been told we're in lockdown for three weeks. I doubt it'll be through three weeks. You know, it's going to be at least double that, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. And it all depends on what happens after that. Because if you think about it, Springwatch does go ahead and they do want it to go ahead, as I say. So last week of May, first two weeks of June. And it's not much of a lead up time now to that. So it's... Um, Fingers crossed and just really hope that, you know, at least we can get something out there. Because I think it's it's really important now, more important than ever, that we put something out that's new and fresh about UK wildlife. Because so many people can't go to work, can't do what they usually do, but they do have access to their gardens. They have, they'll have access to the local woods, the local canal, the local country lanes, the local park, within reason, obviously. And, and it's really important that people are educated about what's out there, what they can see, what they can enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was, well, interesting, as you'd say, because, um, well, you covered what, one of my next questions, because a lot of people have been asking me on the on the build-up to this is, um, what what's happening with Springwatch? Is it is it going to go ahead? And I know there was a Springwatch 
page on Facebook and there was a lot of people concerned that it wasn't going to go ahead because I, I think it yeah it brings a lot of enjoyment to a lot of people so if we're if we're going to be say it does go the way you you mentioned there what can we expect what's what's going to be the top hit from Yolo's back garden then <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dare I ask? Uh, well, I, t I tell you what, I've actually got some cool things in and just outside my garden. Um, I've got a Dunnock's nest. Uh, nice. I've got a long-tailed tit nest, you know, which is quite nice. Oh. I, did, I did have a blackbird nest, but that's failed. Not quite sure right. what's happened there. Um, I did have a chaffinch just starting to gather a bit of moss, but that was killed by a cat from two doors down, so I'm not happy about that at all. Um, oh. But the the other fantastic thing that's around at the moment is a real good show of spring flowers. You know, yes. a great show of primroses, lesser celandine are out and about. The leaves of Lord and Ladies are starting to appear now. Cow parsley starting to come out. Um, over the next week or two, I'm expecting ground ivy and bugle to come into flower. And on the back of that, there's a whole host of queen bumblebees. I've had buff-tailed, mm -hmm. white-tailed bumblebee. I've had red-tailed bumblebee just the other day. Um, and bee flies too. Quite oh, yeah. a few bee flies out and about, yes, which is lovely to see. And, and this is the kind of thing I think on the watches we should be filming, we should be showing people just to let them know, listen, you've, you've not got to go to the Highlands of Scotland or the Isle of Mull or, or, or the Isle of Man. These are in your back garden, you know, so get out there now and enjoy them. And I've got a, I'm really lucky, I've got a small pond. It's only about a metre and a half by a metre, but it's... Yeah. Absolutely jam-packed, full of palmate newts. And the males at the moment are getting very amorous. They're doing this thing where they bend the tail round and they fan the pheromones towards the, the females, you know. So you, you can I can stand there with my cup of tea and watch all this going on. So, yeah, there's a, there's a phenomenal amount going on all around us. doesn't matter where we are. I think, yeah, I mean, when you put it like that, that's probably, that is probably exactly what a lot of the audience want is, is you, yeah, everyone likes to see into a sparrowhawk nest or, a, you know, an unusual bird that you're not necessarily going to get in your, your back garden, but, but, uh, but yeah, I think it is, it needs to hit that. Right, we've had a couple of questions, y'all. Um, yeah. Oh, here you are, this is uh, from a friend of mine, Mark. What new bird species do you think will actually become native in Britain? Ibis and beetles are two species that are rumoured to become proper native soon, as they have noted breeding pairs already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's going to be quite a few. You know, I think we'll continue to see um, some of these heron-type birds. If you think over the past 30, 40 years, Little egrets, great white egrets, cattle egrets. Here we've got spoonbill now. You're right, glossy ibis will be here. You know, purple heron. Um, yeah. You've got little bitten down uh, in Ham Wall area. They've nested at least once down there. Um, I reckon we probably end up getting stuff like penduline tit. There's two mm -hmm. or three of those knocking around at the moment, isn't there? Um, yeah. What, uh, maybe something uh, quite a boring bird with a great name, something like a zitting cysticola. You know, <laughs> one of those, um, yeah. I reckon. But but there's some weird birds that have never made it across. Stuff like the black woodpecker. Yeah, they've only got to go across the channel, and it's fairly widespread over there. But they've never made it across. She's yeah. really good. So surely, you know, it'd be be lovely. I mean, if one of those came across, all the twitches would be would be out on mass. 
the you, you know coronavirus or or not. I I strongly suspect. But yeah, I I think we'll continue to see the trend of some of these wetland birds um, that are on the increase over on the continent, making their way across. Yeah, and of course we've got things. Funnily enough, I I watched a video literally just before we came on on here um, that there was a white-tailed eagle flying around above uh, the Hawk Conservancy down in Andover. Yeah, um, and it it was not one of the ones from the Isle of Wight. It was a juvenile. It wasn't apparently one of the ones from the Isle of Wight. So, yeah, that's you've got other birds moving about, even big big stuff like that. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, fantastic. I saw, I've seen video footage as well of wolves. It was a couple of wolves. Was it in Holland or Belgium, I think? Yeah. There, you know, which is brilliant. I saw wild boar in Bergamo in the middle of Italy. You know, so I, I, I think it's fantastic that just given half a chance, some of this wildlife will come back. And it's all about, you know, when, when this is all over, people are saying, oh, you know, we need to really think about the way we live, blah, blah, blah. Yes, we do. And it'd be brilliant if we did. But human nature, I suspect, dictates that we won't. In two years, we'll have forgotten about all this. It'll be back to normal. I hope not, because I do think one of the desperate things we need is to make room for wildlife. I went for a walk yesterday around the village here when everyone, well, no one was up. It was just after six. And yeah. I compared it to the first time I walked the same lane when we moved in here in 2003. 2003, I could hear Yellowhammer, I could hear Curlew, and I could hear Linnets. Yesterday, not a single Curlew, not a single Yellowhammer, not a single Linnets. They've gone. You know, they've gone quite a few years ago now. Uh, But this was the first time, really, that I'd made an effort to walk exactly that same route. And it's really sad. Really sad. Well, I mean, it, it, I'm going to switch back to raptors. It reminds me of the story you, you mentioned when you did the talk for us with Gloucestershire Raptor Monitoring Group about the kestrels. You remember you saying about yeah. going to see that? Just go on, reiterate that story for everyone that's tuning yeah, in. Yeah, well, where I grew up, uh, the village is called Llanuddin. Everybody knows it as Lake Vernwy. It's an RSPB reserve, of course, today. But yeah. I, used to, I, used to, I used to walk everywhere there. You know, I used to go out, I used to find... Um, I've always been a nester, never, ever took eggs, no interest in nicking eggs, but I love finding nests. And I used to go looking for all kinds of stuff, particularly birds of prey. And you're talking about, you know, sparrowhawks, buzzards, kestrels, tawny owls mainly. Uh, we never had goshawk there then. Um, we never had hobby there then either. So th- those were the main ones. And within an hour of where we lived, um, if I went in every direction, scoured everywhere, I'd probably find between five and seven kestrel nests every year. Some were in um, hollow trees, often ash trees. Some were in old crow nests. One was in an old quarry, same one every year. And I went back about 10 years ago um, and I checked every single one out and I had one pair, just one pair. And that's it. And and that has happened all over Wales, all over Wales. You know, you've, you've only got to go back maybe 15 years. I was still seeing kestrels hovering by the motorway regularly. Now, yeah. if I see one, it really is a red letter day. You know, I see lots of buzzards still. I see ravens, of course, but very, very few kestrels. And these days here in mid Wales, I see far more red kites than I see kestrels. Yeah, well, th- that brings me on to a question I always get asked. 
um, and you probably might know what I'm about to say when it comes to buzzards and kestrels. What what do you th do you think buzzards personally have had an impact on kestrel numbers? That's I always get asked this question. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, the, the the honest truth is I don't know. No one's done any research on it, but. You know, I go back to when I was a kid growing up in San Othin there, Lake Vernuil. Yeah. Buzzards, buzzards were ten a penny. Buzzards have always been ten a penny there. Kestrels were far more widespread than they are now. The yeah. number of buzzards, the number of buzzards there hasn't gone up. I know it has elsewhere, but it yeah. hasn't there. You've always had really high numbers of buzzards there. And and the the only big thing I can see with kestrels, but it doesn't apply to the motorway is the loss of these fantastic old meadows, you know, full of, mm -hmm. full of large invertebrates, full of the big beetles, particularly full of mice and full of voles, which is what they eat, of course. But then you ask yourself about the motorway verges. Well, they are, are still or should be still hooching with all these invertebrates and the, the mice and the voles and everything yeah. else. But the kestrels have gone. So I, yeah. I don't know, Jimmy. I doubt it. I doubt it, but I, I, if it was true, then I'd be honest, I'd say that it's true. But no one's done any work on it yet. Yeah, I mean, I was, I always answer it. I'm, I'm of the opinion that the area I live, like sort of North Wales, Cheshire border, is, you know, I can remember when people would come to me before I, before I was born, you know, in the 70s and so on. People would say, oh, you never used to see a buzzard around here ever. Um and I always sort of say, well, is it more that it's just a, a kestrels are declining? There's no two ways about that. There's something happening. And I agree with you. I think it's habitat more than anything that's driving it. Because as a farmer's son, the, the way we, we farm our land, and this isn't a dig at farmers, um, has changed drastically. Um, it's so, so much more intensive in many ways. But I think it's just a balancing act now, really. That you know, buzzards are filling a niche. Kestrels are declining for X, Y, and Z reason. That's nothing to do with the buzzards, and it's just coincidence. People are, are putting two and two together, really, and coming up with six rather than four. When it comes to, I, d I don't personally think it is buzzards um, that, that are having an impact. Right. Anyway, we've got a couple of questions. What do you think about the? The, the plans or potential plans to release golden eagles into England? Uh, right, okay. Well, I, I know, I, did, I didn't know they were, they were seriously thinking about it. I mean, I know that they are um, releasing them into the south of Scotland. Um, yeah. And, and I think the hope is that they'll spread naturally from there then into the Lake District and Northumberland where they should be. And they were not that long ago, of course. Um, yeah. The, the one difficulty I see with it is that there's a good reason why you've only got, you know, a handful of pairs of golden eagles south of a line from Edinburgh um, across to Glasgow. And that is because there are severe um, persecution areas there. Uh, Lead Hills is, is, is really well known for it and it's a dreadful area. So a lot of illegal persecution goes on there, as there is in the borders where it's mainly pheasant more than grouse down there. You've only got to yeah. come down a little bit more, of course, and you're a hop and a skip from probably the worst place in the whole of the UK, which is the North York Moors, you know. Yeah. Any any eagle passing there is not going to hope in hell. So yeah. at the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit ambivalent about the whole thing, really, and I think we've got to tackle this persecution issue absolutely head on before we 
release birds to their deaths um, because that's what's happening. That's or that's what will happen, you know. So I, I'd love to see golden eagles back. Of of all the birds, if I could see one bird back in Wales, of all the ones that have gone, it would be the golden eagle. They've been absent here for about 400 years now, but you've still got the names. You know, you've got Eruri, which is the Welsh name for the mountains of northwest Wales. That means land of eagles. You've yeah. got cliffs there, Tapererir, the, the eagle's cliff. So, you know, the names are still there. Um, and we should have eagles. We should have white-tailed eagles. We should have golden eagles. The reason we don't, there's only one reason, and that is because of persecution. So, um, it, it, to my mind, reintroducing them now, you'd, it would be a death sentence in most parts of England and Wales. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's a bit like it's a bit like the the hen harrier brood um, brood meddling, whatever you want to call it, situation, isn't it? For me, it's just pointless. If one fact alone why it's pointless is because this you're just moving chicks that are gonna they're not gonna stay in the place you put them. They're gonna move about, and you're potentially just assigning them to to a, a death anyway. So. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I, I think brood meddling is a little bit different. I I, yeah. I think it's idiotic and ridiculous, and it's a sop to the big landowners. That's all it mm. is. Brood meddling. All you're doing is you're going to move birds and they'll say, "Oh yeah, to this other area." We know what's going to happen to them anyway. We know what happens to our hen harriers. We know what happens to our hen harriers. They're yeah. shot. They're trapped. They're poisoned. Whatever. They're heavily persecuted. We know this, that, that, that the science backs all of that up. So brood meddling is just a sop from the government, yeah. which is a Tory government made up of big landowners. It's a sop to the big landowners. That's all it is. Agreed. Right, let's move on. Um, a, a friend of yours, um, I've not spoken to him for a long time, but Graham Horder has sent in something about... Regarding wolves in Holland, I made a point that Holland is more densely populated than the UK. Someone replied that the UK is an island and that's the reason we don't, can't, shouldn't have wolves. Just to remind them, Wales is not an island, neither is Scotland and England, both attacked. So there you go. You remember, you know, you know Graham a lot better. Than I, I, know, I know Graham very well, yeah. And, and I do, I, I mean, both things are correct, you know, that... Um, Holland is far more populated, and and on a personal note, I'd love to see wolves back. I'd you, oh, yeah. you imagine you imagine going for a walk, and you got the possibility in winter of hearing wolves howling. How cool would that be? Now, I accept that it's very unlikely to happen. That there are major issues with it. I accept that because of the way uh, we use the land. You know, big, big, because of all the animals that we kind of keep and what have you. Um, but but on a personal note, and it's a very personal note. I'd love to see Wolves back. Yeah, right. We've got a few questions coming in now. I've got another Raptor question. Oh, we're all about we're all about native, non-native. Uh, the matter of European eagle owl being back in the UK and thoughts on it being considered a native species again. I have heard now of a nesting pair regularly spotted by a close friend of mine in Stroud, so around Gloucestershire Cotswolds, um, and uh, the impact of their, what, what I think the question is, what do you think of, of the return of eagle owls? And we've already covered this with other species. And and, um, and do you think there'll be an impact on, on other species with their return? 
Um, I suspect they will, yes. I, I suspect they will. And I know I'm going to make myself unpopular here because I've got some friends who are massive Eagle Owl fans. I, I love Eagle Owls. But there's no evidence to suggest that Eagles were ever native in the UK. You know, some people argue, oh, well, there's the odd fossil record. But as far as I can dig up, those are from middens, from the Middle Ages, you know, when they would have taken Eagle Owls around in travelling fairs and then when they die, they were chucked on the midden. Um, yeah. But there's there's no evidence to show that eagle owls were ever native here, um, and as a non-native species, I don't think personally that it should be brought back. I think our native species have got enough problems facing them as it is. It's it's a stunning owl. It's a beautiful owl, but it's yeah. non-native. I, re I remember having a really interesting conversation when it all kicked off about, oh, I think it was about eight years ago now with Eagle Owls. Um, there was that big stir with, with the RSPB about whether they should be, you know, left alone or whether they should be called. Um, and um, I spoke to Chris Sperring from the Hawk and Owl Trust about it, and, and he'd spent quite a bit of time out in in um, Scandinavia with some some of the leading experts on on European eagle owls, and and they made quite an interesting point where they said they did they didn't think UK should should have European eagle owls because they didn't feel that as a as a country as a con uh, we we didn't know how to deal with big predators. Yeah, <laughs> was their reply. You know, it would just completely not. Never mind the the balance in the ecosystem. We as human beings didn't know how to deal with living alongside big predators, and they're probably right to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think they are. I mean, you've you've only got to look at the fuss over the reintroduction of beaver. You know, and beavers are rodent. But I've had so many people throw arguments at me, or they'll they'll eat the fish, they'll kill my lambs, and all this. And I'm thinking it's a beaver for crying out loud. It's got two big front teeth. Because it's a road that nibbles on bark and, and 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 you know small branches and leaves and this and that, uh, and so you know you go you go up in size in anything with a bird or a, or a mammal and all hell is going to break loose. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I think he is right. I think he is right. I, I think we just for some reason, and I hate the fact that we can't do it, but we just cannot handle our big predators in in this country, which is a yeah. shame. She's a real. Okay, Gareth's got a question from uh, the Gloucestershire Rat Demolishing Group. It's, I don't know how you're going to answer this one, y'all. Uh, if you could save one raptor from dying out in Wales, what one would it be? Cool. If I had to save one raptor. Four, that's a question and a half, isn't it? I know, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, hand on heart for me, it'd have to be Hen Harry because it's my favourite bird of prey because I grew up in... Um, Sanovin Lake Vernway, you know, surrounded by moors. I found my first harrier nest in 1973 when when I was uh, 11 years old. Um, and so I got a long, long history with hen harriers. But uh, yeah, I, I'd fight tooth and nail for, for the last pair of harriers. I really would. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you about my favourite raptor now, seeing as you brought that up. Um, and uh, what what's your what's your experiences with the incredible hobby, which is oh, cracking birds, really cracking birds. I mean, again, going back to when I grew up, you know, we didn't we didn't have them in mid Wales then. And I remember seeing my first one on the moors, and it had been um, it was hunting uh, northern egg moths. 
and yeah. uh, we sort of walked over to where it had been eat, uh, feeding on these, and it, it it had landed sometimes, and there were just wings everywhere there. You know, it, it was fabulous just watching it. It was there, it was there for several days, I remember. And then soon after that came rumours that they might be breeding, and then people started to have a proper look. And in the Seven Valley here, where I am, probably in the mid to late 80s, um, one or two nests were found. And then I think what's happened since then is that the more people have looked, the more they've found, because they're not easy birds to pin down. Um, no. and, and and they're just fantastic birds. I'll, I'll never forget Spring Watch about probably seven odd years ago when we were in Minsmere. I can't remember when it was, five, six, seven years ago. Yeah. And, uh, I was supposed to be in a meeting and I'm not very good on meetings. So I left the meeting and I'd gone down to the hide and we were all watching, we we're all mesmerized watching a hobby hawking for dragonflies, a big hatch of the Norfolk hawker there. And it yeah. was coming along and catching them and feeding on them on the wing. And you could see the wings dropping down, you know, as it sort of just plucked them off and then off to go hunting more of them. So yeah, absolutely fantastic birds. Yeah, right. I mean, it's funny because I remember I came down to Minsmere to visit our good friend, Steve, Mr. Roberts. And I remember walking around the boardwalks and, of course, hobbies. This, this was when Springwatch were there. So not long, long, a long, long time ago. And um, and I, I was like, I was ecstatic because there was hobbies. Every, every time you looked up, there was probably a hobby in the sky. So, of course, I, I looked like I'd got I, I don't know, four eyes or something to all the other birds because it was common as much. They were like, yeah, it's just a hobby. And I was like, okay, it's over there. And so you know, I embarrassed myself a bit. Because I think too many people were used to seeing it. And, and yeah. so, uh, yeah, <laughs> many people have seen owls swallow their prey hot. This is Graham again. But is this an appropriate way to eat a custard slice? Graham wants to know. Well, yeah. <laughs> The thing is, uh, you've got to have a massive mouth for that. I got a big, big mouth, but it's not quite big enough to eat a whole. The, the skill is in holding one hand, what one end of it, getting your, the other end in your mouth, biting down slowly, and then quickly licking the edges so that the custard doesn't fall on the floor. There's a real, uh, real skill. And uh, even if I'm full of self praise here, it's what I've perfected over about 45 years. So, yeah. Um, I, I, hope, I hope no one's just joined us just at that point when you were describing that, because, yeah, we might, I might get some Ofcom um, complaints. But anyway, um, someone's just asked me, Jimmy, have you seen any red kites in Chester, Salton area? Yes, I have, in fact. Well, not quite Chester, but my friend who's a farmer sent me a video off the back of his tractor he was harrowing the field he was over peckforton hills burwoodsley um out beeston castleway and there was a red kite and and i see them quite regularly the best time i see them around here because they're not breeding yet in cheshire that we found um but the best time is when the farmers are silaging when the farmers are cutting the grass and silaging i've I always see red kites following the forage harvester or or the the track the mower especially when the mower's out because obviously sadly um, animals get caught up in it so um, yeah um, but red kites are seen around here but I I don't know of any breeding yet in Cheshire so yeah but you do see them so that's a that's a success story Yola will have plenty of stories about red kites 
Yeah, yeah. It, I I just find it amazing. You know, when when I joined the RSPB in 1985, I think there was something like 44, 45 breeding pairs, all of them in mid Wales. And when you look at it now, I was in Norwich end of last year. They were on the outskirts of Norwich. I was travelling down um, around Leeds, Harefield House there. They were there. Um, it's just an amazing story. Just an amazing story. And But even now, whenever I see a kite, I still slow down in the car because they're such beautiful, elegant birds with this wonderful long tail of theirs. You know, so cracking bird. And, and it's brilliant to see them coming back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that, yeah, Martin Escapes have put red kites around Rosset. Well, I live right near Rosset, so in your right, I've seen, I've seen red kites around, around here. So I think it's only a matter of time before they start breeding in, in, in Cheshire. Um, it, it really is only a matter of time. So, what, um, you know, what, what have you got planned once the COVID 19 thing subsides? Then, what's your next tour or what, what have you, if you get out <laughs> I suppose uh, a lot of that depends on when all this comes to an end. You know, we, we've been, um, I, I work for an independent company down in Cardiff called um, Aden Productions. I've done uh, a series on Snowdonia and the Brecon Beacons and Welsh Parks and all kinds of stuff with them. And the next one was meant to be the Wild West. It was meant to be Pembrokeshire. Um, okay. And we were going to do a lot of stuff. I was supposed to be out this week actually looking for, dancing male adders you know they they're just trying to film them without disturbing them because they're amazing animals I, I just i love adders um but that's been put on hold um for how long we just don't know i just hope that it goes ahead um but for it to go ahead and for us to do a proper job on it we've got to be filming by four by mid-may and i can't see that happening somehow um so that might be put on the back burner for next year. There's Spring Watch, which I hope will go ahead. Um, yeah. Tours-wise, um, well, I, I was meant to do six or seven talks between uh, a couple of weeks ago and the middle of May. Um, they've all gone by the by, so they've all gone. I, some will be rearranged, some might not be. I'm not sure about that. But the next tour, I was lucky to get the last tour in just before this COVID thing hit. And that... Um, that was uh, up to Speyside in Scotland. Um, and the next one won't be until the end of July. And that will be uh, to Shetland. Brilliant. Actually, Jimmy, I, I tell a lie. Next week, I was supposed to be out in Extremadura looking, okay. at, looking at griffin vultures, black vultures, booted eagles, mm. torn eagles. Great busters, little busters, and all this, but of course, um, that's gone. That's gone by the by. Yeah. On the topic of of abroad, then, if you were to the people that have, have tuned in, if you were to give them your number one sort of fix for birds of prey, as it as we're on Raptor Aid on my page, I suppose it would be somewhere like Extremadura, wouldn't it? Really. Yeah, yeah. If you if you don't want to go very far, um, and you want a bit of sun as well, I would say sort of April May in Extremadura is a brilliant time. Um, you've got stuff like lesser kestrels there uh, in in the old uh, bullring in Merida. There, you know, that's a fantastic place for them. You've yeah. got, uh, as I said, black vultures, griffin vultures, peregrine falcon. Uh, booted eagles, torn eagles, Spanish imperial eagles. You've got all of these birds, you know, and then sort of by 
uh, early May. You've got hobbies coming up from Africa. Um, so, yeah, it's a fantastic place. But nearer to home, you know, you've, you haven't got to go abroad these days either. Uh, I would say if people want to go and see cool birds of prey and guaranteed, I would go to Mull. Mull is such a fantastic island. You've got Golden Eagle. I think it's 32 pairs of Golden Eagle. You've got 22 pairs of Whitetail Eagle. You've got unmolested hen harriers on there. You've got some peregrines. You've got kestrels on there. So, so Mull is a really good place. And, and on top of that, of course, you've got things like otters as well. It's mm. a great place for otters and a whole host of other wildlife too. Yeah, we yeah we I've I've been to Mull and it is it's it's absolutely brilliant and I think not not enough people probably when they ask me about birds of prey I say well you've got to go to Mull as any as the that's the place to go really you don't you don't have to go go abroad really so uh, so yeah absolutely um, what's Gareth asking um, something about Imperial Eagles. Um, to uh, I know a fantastic tracker in Danana uh, who is also involved in the Imperial Eagle project. Really, really cool birds. Yeah, that's uh, good. So, if, if you had to pick a bird that's a bit cheesy, really, these sort of if you had to or what's your favourite, um, if you had to pick a bird to see in the wild, bird of prey. I'm, you know, Steve will have told you I'm, I'm terrible for me little ditty birds and stuff like that. I glaze over when he starts talking about something um, like that. But if you had to pick a, a bird of prey to see in the wild, go on, what, what would it be? Right, well, I, I've been really lucky years ago. It must begin on for 17 years ago now. I went to, um, uh, I, I did three long trips to Russia, th three weeks each. And one of them was to Kamchatka, right over in the east, you know. And I saw Stella Siegel there. And, and that, ah, nice. yeah. that has always been really high up on my list of birds to see. And it, it, it was an okay view. So I'd love to go back or maybe go to Hokkaido in northern Japan and see them there. But, I mean, you've seen a couple of birds I've never seen in the wild. I'd love to see the Philippine eagle. Yeah, that, that, I'll get a good view of that. And also the harpy eagle in yeah. South America. You know, I mean, that eats sloths and, and uh, howler monkeys and all that kind of stuff. So you're talking about some of the big, really powerful eagles. Those would be the ones I would go and see. Nice, nice. Uh, right, Scott has sent a message in. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, Scott's asked whether you remember him, and you should remember him based on the story. Um, hi, Yolo. Do you remember your trip to Nepal many years ago when you... Yeah, I do, yeah. Kevin? Yeah, of course I yeah. do. yeah. Paraglider and a, and a falcon. He's a good man, really good man. Yeah, so we well, interestingly, I know Scott. Scott's going to come on in a few weeks' time and do a Q&A with me on on his, obviously, on him pioneering parahawking and stuff like yeah. that. So I'm on in a few weeks. But he's just said, do you remember when you, apparent, when apparently Kevin landed on your lap and was chowing down on the meat that you tipped <laughs> into your lap during the flight? <laughs> 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 I do, yeah, I do. I must admit, I was beginning to sweat because uh, <laughs> at that time I'd only had one kid and we sort of fancied trying for another one. <laughs> the way Kevin was going, that didn't look very likely for a while. Well, they've only got little beaks, Egyptian vultures, so it's all right. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you've got um, you've got an open invite to go out to Spain, fly room, because they've moved to Spain now. Scott has so. Oh, fantastic! Fantastic! A he, he's a good man, a really good bloke. Yeah, I, I, yes. I look forward to that. Thank you. Scott. Yeah, so he says you can go flying with him in the wild Eurasian griffin vultures out there as well. So um, that would be brilliant. So, yeah, they're, they're all right. Yeah, we've got Scott on in a in a few weeks for a Q and A session to find out all about all about that that side of things. Um, what if you were to give? I, and it's a question I always get asked. If you if you were to give someone one bit of advice when it comes, or not necessarily just one bit of advice when it comes to people who are interested in getting into monitoring birds of prey, I always get asked by students and like you know young starting out biologists or whatever they want to be called. Um, about monitoring birds of prey, what what would your advice be, Yarl, on for anyone, any budding raptor watcher or monitorer? My my advice would be to find somebody local, especially like an old boy or someone who's got a lot of experience, and befriend them. Explain that you know you just you you're really keen on birds of prey. You want to get involved in raptor monitoring, um, but be warned that raptor workers on the whole are quite suspicious individuals you know and rightly so because over the years a lot of people have tried to gain information from them for for ill you know to with yeah. a view to sort of harming the birds so so that's why they might be a bit reticent at first but you find the right person and they'd be delighted to have somebody somebody younger somebody older doesn't matter someone with a bit of time and willing to pour in a lot of time out in the field to help monitor birds of prey it's difficult to find people now. When I was working for the RSPB every spare weekend uh, in spring and summer, I was out and about looking at harriers and merlin and peregrine. And then honey buzzards came along, of course. And I was out helping Steve looking for those. Now it's really difficult to find people who are willing to put in the time and effort to help out. So if there are any people out there, particularly youngsters who are really keen and, and genuinely want to spend time out in the field, then, well, get in touch with a local raptor group as well. If you've got a local raptor group, that's, you know, that's always going to be a whole a fountain of information, not just on the birds, but on the people as well. Yeah, I think it's like I say to people, it's sticking power, isn't it, really? Because it isn't like people think when I think people get caught up on seeing pictures of people ringing barn owls or whatever species, the stuff that ends up on social media. And it's but really, in, in earnest, monitoring raptors is pretty rubbish a lot of the time because yeah. you don't see a lot. Yeah. You know, um, you only have to, like you say, go and spend time with Steve Roberts sat looking for honey buzzards and see nothing for six hours um you know and and that's yeah that's enough to put anyone off so i think it yeah it's about about sticking out mike's mike's put nerf the nerf website up which is in the comments which is right nerf north of england raptor forum they cover obviously the north of england but right down to cheshire so so yeah there's there is people out there that will that will help you but um but yeah there definitely needs more people young people out there um monitoring monitoring birds of prey because uh yeah every, everyone's getting a bit older that's 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 for sure have you got any have you got any other funny stories about raptors y'all from your from your days out and about with them well, well one springs to mind you know good old mate of mine uh, and a mate of yours steve roberts and steve is recognized as the uk's expert on honey buzzards you know, he's been working on them since the early 1990s 
He works on them right across the south of England, right into Wales. And, and he's genuinely one of the world's experts on them. Um, and Steve, as you know, when I go out in the field with him, he goes out very well prepared. He's got his bag with a flask in it, with sandwiches in it, you know, enough for his breakfast, enough for his lunch, enough for his tea. Because as you said, he's out all day. When he's out, he's out all day. He's an incredibly dedicated individual. He's usually got a, a, a little pull-out canvas chair that he's got as well. He'll have a couple of flasks because he never goes anywhere without his tea. And I was out with him up on the hills of North Wales one day and we were pinning down some of the early honey buzzard pears that we had up there. And he sort of set himself up now, you know, really got himself, he'd thought about where he was going to sit with the best all-round view. And then he looked at me, because I hadn't bought a chair, I hadn't bought anything to eat, I hadn't bought anything, you know, as I, I never do. I just used to drink from, from a ditch or from the stream and then starve all day. That was all right. And I was looking up at him and he was sat in his chair, lording it over the whole valley now. And he said, y'all, he said, if anything moves in this valley now, he said, I'm on to it. I'm on to it straight away. And as he said that, right, Honey Buzzard comes out of the wood. There's only the most of the wood was below him all around him. There was one small copse behind him. The Honey Buzzard comes out of that wood circles around and goes back into the trees and i said did you see that steve he said what he said you're having me on if anything would have moved i'd have had that he said but the honey buzzard was nesting right behind him so you know so so doesn't matter how much of an expert you are sometime we all mess up well, I, I I remember going out with um, Steve down to his down his neck of the woods, um, South Wales, and um, and I remember sitting with him. One of the first times I did honey buzzards with him, and I, I we must have been two hours in, or maybe maybe a bit more. And I said to him, I said, I hung side, and I said, I bet these honey buzzards are just round the corner of this bank here doing somersaults. And he just looked at me and said. That's the spirit, Jimmy. You're into honey buzzing monitoring now. That's exactly <laughs> what you think. He's, he's right. But the funniest one I ever had with him was was um, was we went to do long ear now with him, which is one of my favourite. I think one of my favourite nests that I've ever been to. Um, and I didn't know. I didn't really know Steve at the time. And um, and I do a bit of tree climbing, but I'm not like not like Spider Man Steve. And um, he started, we, we got to the nest um, and he gets his kit out. Obviously, anyone listening, this is all under license. Steve's got his license for this. Yeah, um, and, and basically, he started climbing the tree next to the nest. So I said to him, I said, oh, Steve, you do realise you're climbing the wrong tree? Well, of course, he was climbing that tree to look into the nest to see what was going on before he bothered of course he looked down at me and i won't say the full sentence that he said to me but in it, he said no he said yes of course jimmy i always climb the wrong something tree first so yeah that's uh in his best teacher teacher voice so i've i've experienced it but that's yeah that's basically what you need for monitoring raptors is a is a thick skin and a yeah a bit of a bit of a weird sense of sense of humor um 
basically. Right, y'all, um, I've put a, put a call out for final questions and I, I haven't got any in yet. We're about 51 minutes in, so I'm conscious I don't want to keep you up. Um, oh, hold on. Um, someone's asked about local Raptor Griffin Worcestershire. Uh, I can, I'll cover that, Luke, without that. Um, oh, Gar have you, Gareth's asked me whether I've ever climbed the wrong tree. I'll come on to that story in a minute. It's not about me. This is about y'all and this, this tonight, is <laughs> Have you, have you done any much tree climbing, y'all? Or you man sit, stays on firmly on the ground? No, no, no. I, I, I used to be like a monkey. Um, but, but I go back to the days when we never had ropes or anything like that. You know, I remember in the 1980s doing a lot of tree climbing up to the, the goshawk nests. And a lot of the early goshawk nests in places like uh, maybe Onishir, Carnarvonship in northwest Wales, they were in the big old Douglas firs. Yeah. And uh, the lower branches on uh, Douglas invariably are rotten. So you had to hold them right at the base, you know, just where they go into the trunk. And uh, yeah. do you know what? I can honestly say, hand on heart, I never fell once. I'm really, really lucky. I haven't done any proper tree climbing for probably best part of 10 years now. I, I These days, I'd spend any spare days really monitoring mainly ground nesting birds, hen harriers, merlins. Shorty owls, that kind of thing. You know, I still go out every now and again, help a couple of mates with goss and one or two other things. But I don't, I don't go to nests anymore. I don't climb trees, anything like that, just because of a lack of time. You know, if I had, if I had more time, I do a lot more of it. Well, when you get to your status as well, Yolo, you get people to climb for you, obviously. You don't, you don't do, do, <laughs> you don't do that. Are you? So, uh... are you... I use helicopters these days, Jimmy. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Paid for by the Welsh Assembly, no doubt, yeah, I'm sure. The, that's the one, that's the one. <laughs> right. Well, Gareth asked me about climbing the wrong tree. I have climbed the wrong tree in front of a load of students, and I got, I got, that, I got that high up on it, on, on the tree. I looked down to my – Emma was with me, my other half – and I said to her, I said, where's this buzzard nest, Emma? And she went, in the, and she just looked up, dead straight faced as if it was normal, and went, in the tree next to you. And it was, it was about 20 foot iron on it. So anyway, <laughs> that's my embarrassing moment in front of the students. Uh, one more question then, quickly. Yeah. Um, Mike Price, have you any thoughts on Merlin population problems? Yeah, this, this, this is a really, really um, interesting and sad one, really. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, I've been involved in monitoring Merlins, again, going back to when I was a young lad, because Lake Rune used to be a good area for them. Um, and there's been a, a massive population decline. I remember when we did a national survey in the early 90s, 93, I think it was Wales at about 100 pairs. And there'd already been somewhat of a decline then because they disappeared from the coastal areas where they used to be coastal heath, uh, coastal dunes. They were still nesting some of the dune systems in the 1960s. Um, and then in the 80s, we were worried that they were disappearing. But then when we looked into it in great detail, we found that what had happened, there was a shift from ground nesting pairs to nesting in um, old magpie nests on the edge of these upland conifer plantations. Mm. But since then, there's been a further decline and there's been a marked decline. You know, they, if in 93, it was around 100 pairs, I would be surprised if we had... 40 pairs in Wales now. I'd be really surprised if we had 40 pairs. Uh, a part of the Berwyn Moors that I help a lad called Keith offer to monitor every yeah. When I was working that area in the 1980s, there were 14 pairs of Merlin. 
last year Keith and I found two there. So mm. she, you know, so and and again, we just don't know why. We really, well, I I can hazard a guess as to one reason why, because of a massive decline in small birds. Mm. I've not seen the number of merlin, the number of skylarks, the number of winchats, the number of all these birds, uh, willow warblers up on the moors that I used to see, um, and you know, they're bird eaters. Um, mm. So I, I suspect that might be one of the reasons, but that's this is something else that really needs to be looked at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got one more question from a friend of mine then. Um, for co this COVID-19, can you recommend a raptor or nature book that you hold dear to your heart that everyone should read to get them through the, the current situation? Yeah, I tell you which is... Which one is really close to my heart? It's it's old now, so much of what's in there is irrelevant in many ways, but it's still a fascinating book. And it's the New Naturalist series on the birds of prey. It's number 60. It's uh, written by a chap long dead now called Leslie Brown. He was yeah. a world authority on birds of prey and, and African eagles. And that was my Bible. My mum and dad bought it for me for my 14th birthday in 1976. And I read that cover to cover so many times, you know, and uh, that, that, that's my favourite Bird of Prey book of all time. Brilliant. There you go, Ben. Get into that. The New Naturalist series, actually, one of my favourite books at the moment is Mike Toms from the BTO, the owl one that he's wrote, which oh, came out. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. It's absolutely oh, Absolute credit to my, uh, to my uh, yeah, it's brilliant. It's really, really good. So, yeah, right. It's 57 minutes we're into. I'm stopping at 60, right? Someone else is asking about rare, how rare are pallid and Montague harriers in the UK, please, Yolo? Well, I know the answer to that. Go on. Well, yeah, well, pallid harrier, very rare. They don't breed here. They're just a uh, sort of occasional visitor when they do come. So you quite a few twitches out and about. And Monty's area is our rarest regularly breeding bird of prey. You know, you're talking about, I think it's something like between five and eight pairs most years, all of them down in the south of England, southeast mainly. So very, very scarce, very rare birds. Because you did, because it was Martin, wasn't it? There was a piece on Springwatch with Montagues, wasn't there? And Because, I, I mean, I've, I've never seen one um, in, I'm trying to think if I've seen one in the wild, actually. I don't know if I have. Um, and I couldn't go over how small they were, Montague's Harriers, when they're yeah. in the hand. It was yeah, very it's slim, very slim. And I was gutted with that because Springwatch phoned me up. They, they, they know how much I love my Harriers. They phoned me up and asked me, could I go and do an item on them where you go to the nest with the ringers and everything else? Yeah. And I was, I was distraught. Because the it was early August and I was away with a family on a holiday, you know, and uh, I yeah. always say that the family holidays, we have two weeks a year, they are sacrosanct because they have to be. And it's the only time I've come close to cancelling a family holiday. My wife would have killed me, but I was I was distraught that I'd missed out on that. So if anybody listening is monitoring Montague's Harriers and can get me on the license just to go with them. I honestly, I'd, I'd, I'd give my right arm. I really would. Well, there you go. There's a there's a shout out for anyone in there. Right, y'all. I won't keep you anymore. We've nearly hit an hour. So, um, yeah. And the Wi-Fi has managed to stick with us um, in in mid and North Wales. So we've done all right there. Um, thank you very much for your time, buddy. Um, and thanks to everyone for tuning in and sending in questions as well. And whatever you do, 
keep looking after our Raptors because they need all the help they can get. Brilliant. All right, right, everyone. Thank you very much for tuning in. We've got lots of other question and answer sessions. Now I know it works. Um, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stick them all on Facebook for you. Um, yeah, so uh, signing out for this evening. Thank you very much, everyone. Cheers, y'all. See you again. Take care. Ta-ra. Ta-ra, everyone.